this on? Yeah, it's on. I can't tell very well from up here whether the mic is on or not, so y'all are going to have to give me some feedback on that. <laughs> well, good morning. It is good to be back with you all. I'm back where the weather is actually cold, because it doesn't get this cold in Africa. In Africa right now, they're probably at 95 degrees and dry as a bone. So... <laughs> um, it's good to be back where I can actually experience cold weather. A quick update on Africa, and then we're going to use that update to move right into the lesson today. Uh, I got there on October the 3rd, and then only a couple days after that, they went ahead and put me to work because we had the leadership conference promptly afterward. This year, there were over 200 people in attendance at the leadership conference, and it was a great event. We had several people from America actually that came to speak at the conference this year, which was exciting because they were some of my brother-in-law supporters and they were staying at our house and they were given some good lessons and they got to be involved in a part of the work and they got to go home excited about the gospel and seeing all the things that we're able to do in Tanzania. Uh, while at the leadership conference, I actually gave three lessons. One was on the Godhead, namely the role and nature of God the Father. Then the other two that I did were basic biblical interpretation lessons. Then after the leadership conference was over, I was kind of getting settled in. And in the time that I was getting settled in, we were preparing for an upcoming campaign that would happen. The people that came on the campaign came from two congregations, actually. One was the Mount Juliet congregation in Nashville, Tennessee. And the other one is the Central Church of Christ in Augusta, Georgia. That's actually the congregation that my girlfriend is from. So it was interesting seeing all of her people come over and be with my people. That was kind of a neat blend of culture going on there. That was a good campaign, though. We had it in Arusha Town at the Arusha Church of Christ in the surrounding area, and we had over 50 baptisms in 10 days of work. That was an incredible campaign. Uh, from the last report I heard, I heard that out of the 50 that were baptized, we still have 20 or so that are still faithfully coming and growing in the faith, which is an excellent retention rate. If you can keep about half of the people that you are going and sharing the gospel with, that's a really good thing. I can't think of other places that have a retention rate that good. So we have that going on. Um, I'm trying to hit all the big points shortly because I don't want to cut into my sermon time because I feel the word of God is a little bit more important than me talking about Africa. Um, the next thing that happened was Stephanie Stafford came over. Now, for those who don't no, Stephanie Stafford is the wife of the man who established the work in Arusha, where we're at. And his name was Sai, and he's the one that passed away last year, around February. So she came for the first time since his passing away to collect all of her things from the house. And it was kind of a hard time for her, because it was kind of a, a time of mourning and grieving. But it was good, though, because it was kind of cathartic for her in a way. It kind of brought some closure. Um, so she came with her three sons, and they collected all of her belongings, and they put it on a container and shipped that out. And she actually came back again a few weeks later with a group that came for some evangelism, some scouting of the work, and also some Future Preachers training camp, which is the next event that I'm going to talk about, because this was the event that was going on right at the time that I was preparing to leave to come back at the mid to end of December. Every year in Tanzania at the, uh, at the Andrew Connolly School of Preaching, there's a future preacher's training camp for young men between the ages of about 10 to all the way up to 25 years old, which is weird because by all rights, 
if we're counting age, I should be a camper there, but notwithstanding, <laughs> I was able to be there, though, and I was able to preach a lesson every single morning there, and it was really encouraging to see all of the young men that were there who were growing in their faith, but not only their faith, but their skill in delivering the gospel. Some of these little 12-year-old boys that I'm seeing in Africa can give better gospel sermons than I've heard anywhere. Some of these young men are maturing in their faith in a way that I'm confident that the Lord's work will continue to happen in Tanzania if we leave it in their hands. It's amazing to see how well they develop during camps like this. And many times when they come to this camp, you know, of the 50 or so students we usually have that come to the camp, many of them will grow up and then later come and attend the preaching school and become faithful gospel preachers. So it was really encouraging to be a part of that just before I came back. Um... As I was also coming back, they were starting another camp, uh, Tanzania Christian Camp. This is more of like backwoods for Tanzania. Um, I know Brother Mike knows backwoods well. Uh, we had Brother John Rice come over this year. Um, he brought a certain Bert Fuller with him, and they had a good time. They actually conducted two camps while they were there. But during the time of that camp, there was actually over 20 baptisms as a result of that camp, with about 200 campers in attendance. So there were some really big things happening in Tanzania. But amidst all of these things, we are begging the question of why does it matter? Why does it matter? And this is leading into what we're going to be talking about today. Why do we send missionaries to go do these things? For this reason, or for this matter, why are we here today? What is the purpose for what we do? You know, we come here and it's routine. We sing songs and we pray and we take the Lord's Supper and we hear lessons and we come here and we study the Bible, but to what end? Why are we here? Why do we take the gospel to people who need to hear it? And before we answer too quickly, I think we need to consider a few things. We need to, first of all, identify what the purpose of our faith is. I feel like in order to identify what the purpose of our faith is, we need to look at what the purpose God has in the world is. What is God's ultimate purpose in the world? I would put forward to you today that the purpose of God throughout the whole world, throughout all of history, has been the promotion of His glory through His goodness to His people. I want to prove that to you real quick before we jump in. If we remember, first of all, when God delivers Israel from Egypt, if you read the first few chapters of Exodus, what is the reason God gives for delivering his people? Is it for the sake of his people or is it for another reason? It's for the reason that Egypt should know that he is God. That is his number one reason. Secondarily, yes, he loves his people and he's remembering his people and he's acting in deliverance for his people. Absolutely true. But his primary concern was that Egypt would know that he is the Lord. Next case, when God delivers his people and he brings them to the Red Sea, why does God lead his people who are escaping Egyptian captivity to a part of the geography where they are cornered by the ocean? Not really a smart military move, I don't think. Why does God lead his people there when he could have brought them around the sea to another route? So that when Egypt comes, 
God will prove his might and his glory and how he saves his people so that his name would be great. Next case, we fast forward through history a little bit. We see where they're, they're done with their time in the uh, wandering in the wilderness and they're coming to take captive the land of Canaan. And Joshua's leading the conquest on Canaan and they come to a city called Jericho. And Joshua's praying before they go in, and then God tells them exactly what they're supposed to do to take the city of Jericho. Now, Joshua is a warrior. Joshua's probably thinking of, you know, tactics. What are we going to do? Are we going to starve them out and make them leave the city, and then we'll kill them all as they come out? Or are we going to just, you know, siege them? What are we going to do? And God says, here's what you're going to do. You're going to walk around the city, scream, shout like a bunch of banshees, and then you're going to play a trumpet. If I'm Joshua, I'm going to leave that meeting scratching my head like, what are you talking about? That's a terrible idea. This isn't going to work. But Joshua, in this case, says, okay, you know what you're doing, and you brought us this far, so we'll go and do it your way. And what happens? God, through the use of trumpet players, brings down the walls of Jericho so that they have an easy time capturing the city. Why? So that his name would be great, because only God can bring down a city with trumpets. It's not so that we can look at the might of the soldiers of Israel. It's not so we look at the might of the leadership of Joshua. It's so we look at the might of the God of heaven who brings down the city with trumpets. What is God's primary goal? His greatness. We fast forward through history some more, and we see... A young man by the name of David who is a shepherd and a servant, and he does what? He slays this big problematic giant that King Saul can't figure out how to beat through the power of God. And David walks up to Goliath as they go into battle, and he declares, he says, You come at me with a sword. I come to you in the name of the Lord God. Why does God use a a young man with a stone and a sling to take down this problem? Not so we can exalt King Saul. Not so we exalt David. So we exalt the God of heaven who delivered the giant into his hands. We can go on and on through history. We can look at cases like Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego who were thrown into the fire because they refused to worship Nebuchadnezzar as God king. And God saves them. Why? So that the God king will realize that he is not the God. All throughout history, we see God acting in such ways to pursue his glorious name. And that has been his primary purpose throughout history. But there's another side to this coin. Just as much as it is true that God is jealous for his glory, and that the glory of God is the goal of God, we also see that his glory is demonstrated in his goodness to his people. The glory of God is demonstrated in his goodness to his people. In which case we see in all of these instances how God uses his people and their benefit to bring about his glory. He rescues Israel from Egypt and gives them a new life, a better life. He saves them from slaughter at the Red Sea. What else does he do? We see how he prevents more bloodshed than necessary for his people if it's an on-right attack at Jericho. We see how he preserves Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's lives. 
we see how through David taking out Goliath, there needs not be a battle for his people. He's protecting his people all along the way and delivering them through it all so that his goodness can win the day. And we ask what the purpose of God is in the world. The purpose of God in the world is to glorify himself through demonstrating his goodness to his people, to the world. I mean, this is what all of Israel stood for in the Old Testament. Israel was a nation that should never have reached the amount of prosperity that it did. Why did it reach that prosperity? Because the Lord was their God. And when everybody saw the nation, they said, their God is great among the gods. Their God is greater than our God because no other way is possible for them to be this prosperous. God has always been interested in magnifying his name among the nations. This is especially evident in the book of Malachi. Read through the book of Malachi and just count how many times God refers to his great name or his mighty name. God is interested in promoting his glory throughout the nations to the benefit of his people because our goodness or our benefit, rather, is wrapped up in his goodness of his glory. Now, why do I say all this? I say all this so that we have a way of understanding what the purpose of our faith is. We have faith in this God, but our faith in this God needs to be aligned with the purpose of this God. And if the purpose of this God is to glorify his name throughout all the world, then that should also be the purpose of our faith, should it not? Why are we here today? To declare the glory and the greatness of God. Why do we send missionaries all throughout the world to go spread the gospel? To glorify the name of God through the benefit of people everywhere who will find salvation because of him. You see how it works? When God gets glory, people are delivered. When God gets glory, people are saved. When God gets glory, there are blessings abounding. This is a, a twofold nature of the glory and blessing of God. Why are we here today? Sometimes we come to church and it's routine. We just come and we do the same thing we've always done. Sometimes we come and we sing the same songs and we don't pay attention to what it's saying. Sometimes we come here and it's just this monotonous thing that we know we're supposed to do, so we come and we do it. And we've missed the fact that we are here to give praise to the Lord of heaven. Sometimes we do the things we do in Christianity because we know we need to do them, and so we go ahead with it, but we don't focus ourselves on why we do what we do and finding the purpose of our faith. And the purpose that we have is to do everything in our power, in our situation, to glorify the Lord God and bring about His goodness in the world. And I want to encourage us today on how to do that better and more effectively, because I want to look at one man in particular in the Bible who did just this. So if you all would open your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 1. We're going to look at Nehemiah's situation and his story. And we're going to pull away some facts and some, some principles that we're going to apply to our own lives. Now some background on Nehemiah while you all are turning there is this. It's, it's to the point in Israel's history where God has sent Israel 
or I should say Judah at this point, because Israel had already gone into captivity in Assyria. So he sent Judah, the remnant, away into captivity into Babylon, which means that Jerusalem was destroyed, the walls were all burned and laid waste, they were plundered, and everybody around their vicinity thought that they were a laughingstock. And now they're suffering for 70 years in captivity in the Babylonian era. And then during the time of their captivity, and you can read about this in Daniel, we see that the Medo-Persians come and they take over and destroy all the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. So when the Medo-Persians arrive, their king doesn't really care about this old grudge match between the Babylonian Empire and Israel. So he says, you know what? I have no reason to keep you here. You can go. Be here, you take your temple treasure, go rebuild your temple, go set yourself up as a nation again. That's fine. I don't care. I've got other things to worry about. And we see how when this happens in the book of Ezra, there's communication back and forth between the people of Israel who are working and then the kings of the new empire. And then we get to Nehemiah's situation. And then we read in the first, let's read the first five verses together. He says, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Yeah, I don't want to name my son that. Hakaliah. Now it happened in the months of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. If you mark your Bibles, you can underline the word shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now let's see Nehemiah's response to this. In verse 4, Nehemiah says this, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Why is Nehemiah weeping so bitterly? Why is Nehemiah in such a state of grief over the fact that Jerusalem has no walls? Why is he in such torment over this? Is he some soft-hearted person who just can't handle horrific news? Not at all, because if you read about Nehemiah later in the book, you'll see that he is not a softy in any way whatsoever. So why is he crying? He's weeping bitterly over what, what... what the state of Jerusalem was. Now, peering back into the mind of a Jewish person in this time, Jerusalem would have been the epicenter of their faith, their culture, and their economy. Jerusalem was where you go to worship. Jerusalem is where you go to trade. And this is the the center of all trade for Israel. It's where the king is. It's where the temple is, where they think that God lives. It's the center of the camp of Israel, where the Holy of Holies is. It's where God himself is with his people. Now, in the mind of a Jew, what happens when you hear that that precious site does not have the protection of its walls? It communicates a bigger message. Because the walls symbolize something other than simple protection. It symbolizes the prosperity of God's people. See, what would happen is if Jerusalem had no walls and they were getting raided every other weekend, then what does that say about their God? That their God is weak. Their God is incapable of saving them. Their God is not a glorious God. That their God is 
not worthy to be praised because he can't even protect his people with a wall. He can't bless his people enough with protection. So Nehemiah, here's the state of Jerusalem, his holy and precious city, where God's presence used to dwell with them. And he thinks about the state of the glory of God and how it's in shambles now, or, or at least the representation of it is. Now let me be clear. The glory of God will never, ever, ever be in shambles over the affairs of men. God is glorious and worthy of all praise no matter what we do. Let me be very clear when I say that. But the representation here is that God is not doing his job for his people. And Nehemiah cannot stand that. Nehemiah weeps and mourns because the state of affairs for God's people is in such a dismal place that is not reflecting the glory of God like it should be. And we see that he prays and he fasts about this for many days. And you look at the time frame in the book and the many days there indicates that it was upwards to three months of praying and fasting. How many times when we are presented with a challenge that really grieves us in our spirits, how many times do we pray and fast for three months about it? (laughs) We don't do that. But we get a picture into the heart of Nehemiah here. If we continue and read, let's, let's look at Nehemiah's prayer as he prays before God. Verse 5 says this, And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you have commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you are outcasts, though your outcasts, rather, are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Note the the use of the phrase, my name. My name in Hebrew thought was representative with my presence. If the name is dwelling with you, name meaning Yahweh God, the presence of God is with you, which means glory and power and blessing. Where am I? Uh, Verse 10. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. Take note of that too. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And the last little bit is inconsequential right now momentarily where it says, now as a cupbearer to the king. That's giving historical background on his position at the time. But the point that I want to bring out today, well, I want to bring out several points today, but I want to look at the heart and mindset of Nehemiah so that we can know what it takes to live a purposely or a purpose-filled faithful life. And I'm going to run through these rather quickly because I'm running short on time. I'm not long for this pulpit right now. (laughs) So we're going to move a little quickly through these. Number one, purpose-filled faith is a faith that fasts and prays. 
Anytime in Scripture, and we're going to use Nehemiah for our example here, but anytime in Scripture that we see the people of God about to encounter the work of God, we see them entreating the power and presence of God. That's a fact. When we go to Acts chapter 2, what are the apostles and the disciples in the upper room doing? They're praying their hearts out before the Lord. They're praying nonstop. Praying, 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 Lord, come. Lord, be with us. Lord, be present with us. And then what happens? They're immersed in the Holy Spirit. And they go and they preach the gospel. And Peter delivers a sermon. And 3,000 people are added to the church in one day. Nehemiah. We know what Nehemiah does. He goes and he reconstructs the walls of Jerusalem and helps with a massive reconstruction project to bring Jerusalem back up to its former glory. And we see that he undertakes this. But what does he do first? He doesn't sit down and write out a plan. He doesn't sit there and figure out a budget. He doesn't sit there and think of creative ways to gain popularity. He doesn't sit there and do all of this planning. What does he do very first thing? He prays and he fasts for upwards to three months, petitioning for God, saying, please be a part of this. We are jealous for your name. We want to make your name great. Remember us, O Lord. Remember your promise to Moses that if we return to you, you return to us. Remember all these things, God. He's reminding God and begging for God to be a part of this endeavor. If we want to live purpose-filled, faithful lives, we have to fill it with prayer and fasting. We simply have to. But I'm afraid that in our culture we've grown accustomed to doing everything ourselves, you know, the American way. If we put enough hard work into it and enough effort and we stick to it, we'll get it done ourselves. That's not at all how the people of God operate when it comes to spiritual matters. When it comes to the spiritual work of the Lord, we don't rely on our power. We pray to God saying, Lord, if you will this, then help us to do this to your glory. Be with us in this endeavor. Allow these things to work out in your favor. That's what a person who lives a purpose-filled faith life does. The next point that we want to look at is that a purpose-filled faith is a faith that recognizes who God is. How many times did Nehemiah reference the state of the name of God? See, when you're a Hebrew and you mention the name, you have to understand what all comes attached to the phrase, the name. Because that's how they refer to God. First of all, when they say the name, they are referring to the personal name of God, Yahweh. The name that they thought was too holy to even escape their lips. They didn't even pronounce it. When they would write it in Hebrew, they would purposely punctuate it in a way that makes an impossible word. That's impossible to pronounce so that you don't accidentally slip up and pronounce the name of God. Because it's so holy, so full of glory that it would besmirch his name if we said it. That is their mindset when they say the name. It's an instant picture of glory, of holiness, of majesty. So Nehemiah, when he says the name, and he says it twice... He mentions this. Feel the weight of the glory that he is carrying with that title. He's saying, we are jealous for your name, O God. He realizes who God is. Many times in our Christian walk, we go through life and we don't really take the time to appreciate who God is. We just go about our daily lives 
And while we may pray occasionally, and we pray before meals, and we ask God to bless us, we don't really know who we're praying to and what he is capable of, or at least we don't remind ourselves of that often enough. When we pray, we are entreating the attention of Almighty God. God, who is upholding every single particle in the universe as we speak. And while he is doing that, and we pray to him, he turns his attention directly to you. And this is the God who is interested in his glory, but also his glory for the sake of our goodness. Do we realize who God is? Do we realize how powerful he is? And how capable he is of managing our lives? How capable he is of empowering our lives in such a way that he will help us to bring him glory when we set out to do it? Remember who God is. Point number three that we can pull from this text is that a purpose-filled faith is a faith that sees ourselves and our situation in light of God's holiness. What's the first thing Nehemiah prays about when he starts praying? He says, we have sinned. Even I and my father's house, and we try to do very good according to your law, but even we have sinned, and we have corrupted your statutes. Why is this important? Because it takes the focus off of our own self-righteousness and puts the attention back on God. It sees ourselves in a proper light saying, you know what, we have sinned, but we are coming humbly with a contrite heart, begging you, O God, to be amongst us, forgive us, and return to fellowship with us. Was this not the whole reason why God sent them to exile in the first place? For this attitude right here. The reason that they were sent away to exile in the very first place was because they would not acknowledge the fact that they were sinners and that they needed desperately God's forgiveness and that they would strive continuously to obey the statutes of God. And through years of ignoring these things, God had finally said, fine, if you want to be this way, then you can go over here and time out for a little while until you figure it out which is what happened. And then we see the the attitude of a repentant heart coming from Nehemiah saying, Lord, I know we've sinned. I know that we have not done what you wanted, but we need to try harder and we need you to be here with us. Help us, teach us, enable us to grow. A purpose-filled faith is a faith that sees our situation in light of God's holiness and asks for his help to overcome it realizing that it's not about my strength, it's not about my power, it's about what I can do through God's help for his glory. That's what it's about. The fourth point that we can look at from this text is that a purpose-filled faith is a faith that learns to see things the way that God sees them. Nehemiah had heard the news about Jerusalem being in ruin. He had heard the news that what was a representation of God's glory is an absolute waste. And while God's glory is not in waste, the representation of his glory is. And that needs to be fixed. And God was looking at the situation saying, I am all glorified, I am almighty, but no one here is realizing that. We need to do something about that. We need to reestablish who I am as God of this people. And Nehemiah sees this too. That's why he's so upset. 
because he sees the need for God to be glorified amongst the peoples of the world. He sees the need for everybody to look at God's people and see a reflection of his majesty. That was the purpose of Israel in the days of old, so that everyone would look at this impossible little nation and see the glory of God reflected in it. And that was not taking place. They were failing at their job to be a reflection of God's glory. Do we fail sometimes at reflecting God's glory the way that God's people should? Absolutely. It's foolish to say that we don't. But could we try a little harder sometimes with prayer and with faithfulness to God and through entreating the favor and the presence of God in our lives and in our work and in our daily schedules so that we can be an image bearer of his sovereign majesty to the people around us. If we want to live a purpose-filled faith, we have to see things the way that God sees them and think of the ways in which we can show the world God's glory through us. Brings us to our last point of our sermon today, and we're going to wrap it up with this one. Purpose-filled faith is an obedient faith. It's an obedient faith, and that's a rather simple point to make after all these other kind of complicated ones that we've been talking about. But this one little point could be the difference between an eternity in heaven with God or an eternity away from his presence in torture. One little point could stand between us and an eternity in glory with our Father or an eternity in damnation away from his presence. If we, in our faith, have not come to the point of obedience, whether it's the initial step of obedience and becoming a Christian or after we become a Christian, continuing to obey the commands of God faithfully, then we are missing the mark. We're missing it. You know, the greatest defining moment of the glory of God in all of Scripture revolves around Christ. Christ left heaven, forfeited his own glory for the sake of coming and living on this earth so that he can protect the reputation of God and save sinful man. Now, what do, I say, what do I mean when I say he protects the reputation of God? See, God's own character is in question when there's sin on the table because God is a just God and God is a loving God. Both are a part of his nature and he cannot change either one of them. If there is sin on the table, Nahum chapter 1 verse 3 tells us that God will never let a guilty person go without punishment. Never, period. End of story. If you're guilty, you will be punished. That's how that works. But at the same time, we see that God is a God of compassion and faithful love. The whole concept of faithful love in Scripture is never ending, never quitting, love and mercy and compassion no matter what. So how can God do both of these things simultaneously for a sinner without compromising his deity himself? You see the conundrum? Christ came and left his glory so that he could preserve the holiness of God, so that God could be both just and loving in one person that took all the punishment and 
released all the sin from those who are in him. In Christ, God can be holy in both aspects. He does not have to choose one or the other. He does not have to put himself in that situation. Praise Jesus for that. Jesus came and glorified his Father in that way. But look at how the twofold glory and blessing of God works. Jesus came to glorify the Father in that way, but in that glory, we also see the goodness of God revealed in that Jesus allows us to have access to the grace and blessing of God. That is the ultimate blessing of goodness that God has ever given to his people. Because of Christ, we don't have to suffer the wrath of God. Because of Christ, we don't have to endure the never-ending wrath that is due to sinners. Because of Christ, God does not have to choose between love or justice. Praise Christ. But it does no good to praise Christ if we do not faithfully obey what he says to do. If we are not in Christ, then we have no access to the grace and blessing of God. If we are not in Christ, we have no part or share in the inheritance that is worthy of him. If we are not in Christ, we do not have salvation of our sins, because Romans chapter 8 verse 1 tells us that there's no condemnation for those who are where? In Christ. Is there condemnation outside of Christ? Absolutely. The only place that we're free from judgment is in Christ, and how do we get in Christ? Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4 tells us that we are baptized into Christ by being baptized into his death, his burial, and then we raise up again with Christ in new life. That's how we get into Christ. And if that is something that you have not done yet today, then know this. As of now, you do not have a part in the inheritance and glory and riches of Christ. But also know this. There is no better time than today to put him on in baptism. There is no better time than the present because the glory that you will receive in Christ is worth more than whatever situation you are in in your life right now. And then we can start walking in faith together with the purpose of magnifying the Father in heaven every day of our life and ascribing to him the glory that he is worth. And then we realize why we obey in the first place and why we do what we do. We find the purpose of our faith. And that is the same thing that Nehemiah realized. Our representation of God's glory should be the number one thing that we do with our lives. And we take the appropriate steps to make that happen in our lives. If there is any need today whatsoever, whether it's to put on Christ for the first time or whether it's to simply praise God for the good things he has done in our lives, or if we need to simply dedicate ourselves to walking more faithfully with purpose and glory to God, won't you come right now today and make those needs known as together we sing this song.